Revelation chapter 21. Now, not to mislead you at all, we're going to be really in chapters 21 through 22 today, the last two chapters of the Scriptures um, that are written and that will ever be written. But, I think that verses 1 through 8 give a very good summary where everything that we're going to be discussed is touched upon in some way or another here today. So, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible word. Listen to these promises, church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And now we we switch to a call in the present to the church. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, moral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask You today that You would fill us with Your Spirit to consider things that Your own Scripture tells us are, are too wonderful for us. Um, things that have not entered into the heart of man, the goodness and the blessings You've prepared for those who love You. And Lord, I just pray that You would help us to see Your promises, to believe them, and to cling to them. God, because this is the purpose for which they're given. I pray that the, the meditation of my heart, God, will be acceptable in your sight today. And these weak words would be multiplied by the work of your Holy Spirit to be beneficial for your people. Lord, bless us as we hear your word preached today. Help us to hear it rightly. In Christ's name, amen. So as we see Revelation 21, verses 1-8, through 8, we've passed from Revelation 20 where we considered the hope that the Apostle John and the Holy Spirit want the churches to have in between the Advents. In between the first coming of our Lord and Savior and the second. But here in chapters 21-22, through 22, we have taken up the idea of after that judgment, the eternal state coming to play. And what that will be like for His people. Now... At the beginning of this short Advent series that we're doing, we considered in the book of Genesis, first and foremost, how there's this idea of protology. That the beginning of all biblical doctrines start in the book of Genesis like acorns or seeds from a tree, but they are planted there and grow throughout the entire Scripture to be a beautiful forest which we have more clarity to understand. But in these last two chapters, we have the consummation of all the promises that God gave to His people coming to pass in a moment of time that will exist forever into all eternity. What a wonderful thing that is that should be for us to consider today. That history is real, but there's coming a time where history as we know it will be no more and all things will be made new. All things will be made new. And John encourages us through the Spirit to trust in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in that eternal state. 
John wants us to set our eyes on the things that are above. That's why these things are given. And the purpose that they're given is to give us hope in the certainty, in the certainty, the concrete reality of a coming new perfect world and the certainty of a perfect new human nature. That's what we're to hope for, brothers and sisters. These are the things that plague us because of the curse. The cosmos is corrupted, but our internal state, our souls are corrupted as well. But all of these things will be made right in that final day. So, church, be comforted, point one. Because God promises a new environment for His people to dwell in. That's the best language I could use, but I hope that you'll see what I'm talking about is the people of God are going to be taken out of an evil present age and placed into a brand new context that is blessed and holy. And part of that new context, I have threefold. Joe might like it. I, I use C's. Okay? Christ will place His bride in a new creation. Christ will place His bride in a new communion. And Christ will place His bride in a new community. Okay? So first, I want us to see that Christ will place His bride in a new creation. That is, the physical world that we inhabit will be made absolutely and completely new. And you might notice in verses 1 and 2 and verse 4, we have this idea in Revelation 21. There's a new heaven and a new earth. But I want us to look at verse 2, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The whole idea of Revelation 21 and 22, with this new heavens and new earth being created, should really encourage us, brothers and sisters, because it is a preparation for his bride. It's the new home for His bride to live in. The bride that He suffered and died for, He is preparing a place for her as we read in John chapter 14. And this place will be absolutely glorious. But, and I, maybe you have the same problem if you've ever heard that, um, that song that we sang in our old church especially, the mansion over the hilltop. Right? where all of the focus is put upon the blessings and the riches that are going to come to God's people, but it's sorely lacking in any kind of Christology and how we obtain these blessings. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that the new heavens and the new earth will be created and given to His people, but it's all and only because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here we have such a wonderful contrast to what we saw in Genesis chapters 1-3. through The first Adam was in an absolutely perfect place for him at that time. He was placed in the garden, as Joey taught us, plucked out, made from the dirt, and put into the Garden of Eden, a place that was perfect for him in the covenant that he was under. But sin in that perfect place entered the world through his disobedience and rebellion, and the whole cosmos... The whole universe was plunged into sin, destruction, vanity, and death at that moment. That's what the first Adam did through his sin. But the second Adam, he came to this plunged into sin, cursed world. And through his righteousness, what did he do? He raised the cosmos. He raised the whole creation to perfect, perpetual, eternal blessedness forever and ever. And I want us to see that, brothers and sisters, that that the death of Adam in the garden plunged us, but the righteousness of Christ and His resurrection, not only are we attached to His resurrection, but the whole world is attached to it. And it will rise one day to be perfect and sinless and curse-free. He is the first fruits of of our resurrection, but He's also the first fruits of the new creation. Jesus rising from the dead is the first part of that new creation. And me and you, when we hear the Gospel and we're made new in our hearts, we are first fruits of that new creation as well. 
but it extends even to the physical world that God made. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 to see this with some clarity. That it's the resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ that raises the cosmos to be a place of perfection for the bride of Christ. Notice verse 18. What a wonderful reminder as we think about the new heavens and new earth. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And notice, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, that's vanity, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is, the creation itself waits for the redemption, that is the resurrection of God's people because it knows that itself will be made new. Itself will be made new. And if this creation is coming, God has promised to make all things new, I think that an appropriate question for us to ask is what qualities does the Bible say this new creation will have? If we have a promise that because Christ's resurrection, making all things new, everything in heaven and earth will be bound together in Him, what's that going to be like? Well, first, we can think about it physically. Right? Physically. Now, I'm sure many of you have the experience of being weighed down by the constant in and out of work, dealing with children, dealing with family, in your present context, and maybe once a year, maybe more than that, you plan to change your physical context, to go on vacation, so that you can be renewed by a new physical location. Now, the context matters to us. And God is going to bring that context and create a new context for His people. Now, in Eden, we had perfection for its purpose made in the garden. And Adam and Eve were placed in that place of relative perfection in order to spread God's image and God's dominion throughout the whole earth. But Eden in itself was not completely and entirely perfect. It wasn't complete. Adam and Eve had work to do. It was not eternal. And maybe most importantly, there was a possibility of falling. There was a possibility of falling away. But the promise that we have today is better than Eden. It's better than the original creation that God made with His people. There will be a perfection made for the people of God and we will have no need to go out and dominate it. Because Christ had already done it for us. We see that there will be no more curse in it. There will be no more curse in it. And we have that there's going to be no more sea and even no more sun. Uh, Look with me if you're in Revelation 21, that we have promises to this effect. We see first, in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And then if we look over into verses 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The creation is going to be changed to such a degree where it's not going to be, it's going to be a a different kind of creation. Now, we don't know in the symbolical language of Revelation if there's literally going to be no more ocean and there's literally not going to be any more sun, but the point being that the cosmos is going to be changed to such a degree because God Himself is going to provide those things. The sea often represents in Old and New Testaments. The chaos and the evil of the world. You might recall the beast rises out of the sea in Revelation. Right? He's an evil entity coming from the place of chaos that represents the abyss. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be a place where we ought to fear. 
The sun itself was given in the first creation for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. But in this reality, there's going to be eternality. There's not going to be a, a changing of seasons, day and night, dark. But spiritually, there's going to be continuity. The glory of the Lord, to sum that up, will be so manifest that it will replace the need that we have for the sun. There's going to be no more threat of environment because of this physical change in context. The people of God will no more have to fear what the cosmos can do to it through sickness, disease, or any of these things. But perfection is spread throughout the whole earth. But there's also a psychological context I want us to realize. As we're put into this new creation, notice the wonderful words of verse 4. He away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the first things have passed away now man was created as an emotional being a, a passionate being to experience emotion and everything like that we were created in fact as the Westminster Shorter Catechism Question one says, to enjoy Him forever. We're meant to have joy in our God. But because of the fall, because of the curse, we suffer internally. We do mourn. We do cry. There is death and there is pain. But the wonderful promise here is that those first things in the new heaven and the new earth have passed away. And they're no more. They belong to the things of this earth now, this creation that are shakable. But in that new heavens and new earth, they will be no more. There will be no more anguish for the people of God. As we think about that psychological element, I just want us to think about how prevalent it is in our world today to deal with all of these psychological problems. Uh, I remember hearing a, a guy from Iceland. He's a missionary. And he talked about Iceland being ranked as the, the happiest nation on the earth. Right? But then there's a, a parallel um, <laughs> stat to that. That it's also the nation on earth that takes the most amount of antidepressants. Okay? Now, it's not meant for us to laugh at. Even though we can see the maybe the the strangeness of that, but it's meant to show us that there are psychological realities on this earth. This earth is a place of anguish, of depression, of sadness, of death and mourning, but in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be no more. I I love Psalm 90 as Moses, the man of God, he prays to the Lord and says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. And I can just imagine Moses as the man who led millions of Jews out of Egypt and spent 40 years with them in the wilderness as he thought, God, if I could just have 40 years given back to me where all the anguish, the pain, the anxiety, the depression that that has come upon me as your shepherd of your people, that 40 years of happiness would be given back to me. How, how wonderful would that be? But we're promised here time without end that the former things have passed away. These are wonderful promises, brothers and sisters, that we have a better context coming to us, a better world created for us where all of these things will be made new. God will do this forever, and our new home is better than everything and all that we could imagine. But He doesn't just give us a new physical creation. He gives us a new communion. New communion with God. Notice verse 3. Oh, and I hope that this stands out to you. He heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. First thing we notice in this promise of a new communion with God is that there's a new dwelling with the people of God. 
That God is going to be manifest to us in a new way. The, the presence of God is going to be sensed, felt in a brand new way. Now, as we consider what we just considered, going to a new heavens and a new earth where we have a new context that's free of the curse, we have to realize that as Christians, that, that physical new context can never be enough and it can never satisfy the born-again Christian soul. We are created for communion with God. We're created as creatures to know Him and to love Him and as we've already said, to enjoy Him forever. In the Garden of Eden, we were created for communion with our God and He walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. But your sin and my sin broke that communion. We broke the covenant that God gave to us But God in His grace promises to renew that. To dwell with man once again. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, doesn't He? He comes to Adam and Eve and He renews His dwelling place with them. He casts them out of the Garden of Eden. But in time, He even shows to the people of Israel in the tabernacle and the temple that I am willing to dwell with My people again. I will put My tent that looks like your tents in the middle of your camp and dwell with you. But that renewal was... Partial in degree, wasn't it? That God does dwell with His people, but there's all sorts of bars and gates. There's restrictions to enter His communion because we're unclean and unholy. In the church, we have a greater manifestation of the communion, the dwelling that God makes with His people as He promises to dwell with His gathered saints. And it's a wonderful promise. And we experience those blessings, don't we? The blessings of of the word preached, the sacrament given, the blessings of our fellowship together and in prayer. But brothers and sisters, this is just a foretaste. The, The greatest spiritual experience, if I can use that word without scaring any of us, the greatest spiritual experience that we have is nothing compared to what God promises in this text to dwell with His people. He will come and He will make His dwelling among us fully. And again, I'm repeating myself a lot today. And forever. And forever. But it's not just the dwelling of God that's mentioned in this text, right? That He'll be close to us. Implicit in that and explicit in verse 3 is the relationship that we will have with Him. Isn't it? He promises that He will be a God to us and we will be His People. Now, that is not a, a brand new promise given in the pages of Holy Scripture. Rather, this is a promise that is actually repeated all the way from Genesis throughout the New Testament. And some have put, and I think it's rather convincing, that this is the substance of God's covenant of grace that He made with man. That He will be a God to us and we will be His people. Okay? That is, even in the garden, when man fell, in Genesis 3.15, he says that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will have enmity. It's as if God is saying, although you have broken my covenant, broken relationship, broken my communion with you, I'm going to take from the seed of the serpent a certain people and make them my people. In Abraham, it's renewed. that He's going to create a nation of Israel. They're going to be His people and He will be their God. And we are grafted in to that reality. We are made to partake of the fruit of those promises. Now, if that's true, that throughout the Old and New Testament there's a, a promise that God will take a people that were not His people and make them His people, how is this any different? You understand my my question? That if we have a great eschatological promise that things are going to be new and different in this text, how do we read it differently than everything else? Well, I would tell you, brothers and sisters, that throughout Genesis through the New Testament, there's always been false churches, false believers, false brothers. There's been a lack of assurance in our own hearts. I I can look around the room and know that that's the case. That sometimes we question ourselves. Are we really God's people? And is God really my God? 
But there's not going to be any question on that day. In the new heavens and the new earth, in that new context, and God being with us, we are going to know for certain that everybody in that place is truly God's person. We're going to know, even in our own hearts as we examine ourselves, that we are God's people. And there will be no lack of assurance in that place ever again. It will be perfectly clear. Let me give another example. Me and Joey, the reason why we do membership interviews, okay, is to ascertain if somebody really believes the gospel, if they're really one of God's people, to the best of our ability. The reason why we fence the Lord's table every week and warn you, if you don't love the Lord and you don't care about keeping His commandments, let these elements pass by you. Why we do church discipline on those terrible occasions is because it's not perfect here. But there, it will be. It'll be manifest. It'll be clear to us. Lastly, not only in this new communion will there be a dwelling and a relationship renewed, there will be experience with our God. That is, sensible experience. We will will know, sense, and see our God forever. Now, if you're in Revelation 22, or 21, 20, whatever, look over. That sounded irreverent. I didn't mean it that way. 22, verse 4. Notice the promise we see there. And they will see His face. They will see His face. We're told, again, in the Old and New Testament, that God cannot be seen. He is invisible. But something will be different here where we will... We will see our God with new eyes and new ability. And I just want to impress this, the great glory of this upon us. Turn with me to three witnesses in the the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. That we will be in full communion in relationship with our God. And part of that is the wonderful, maybe the, the pinnacle blessing that we will see His face not in terror, but in love. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. They'll see the God that if you saw Him today, you would die because your physical body could not, could not uphold under it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. I trust these are familiar to us, but they're wonderful. 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll I'll read verse 11. This is talking about the eternal state and when Christ comes again. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. I, like, I almost have to say, Paul has to be speaking in a hyperbole there, right? That I'm going to know God fully, even as I'm fully known, something I can't really comprehend. Um, but it's a great promise that seeing His face is to know God better. Just as to see your wife is to know her better than maybe when you first met her online or through letter or something. 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, again the promise, in verse 2, uh, John writes, 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now, okay, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. Something about seeing the Lord come in glory that's going to change our natures and make us become like Him. The the beatific vision, as the old theologians would say. He gives us new communion. But He also gives us a new community. 
That is, there will be evil no more. As Ephesians and Galatians tell us, this world is a present evil age. Now, a little bit of explanation there. When the Bible uses the word age, it's not just referring to a length of time, okay? but it's also referring to location. Okay? So this world is a present evil age in its location and the time that we are in at the moment. That's important for us because at the destruction in the new age, there will still be evil, but it's not going to be part of that new creation. It's going to be a different age, a different cosmos separated from it. This present world is an evil age. And if we think about those texts in Galatians and Ephesians chapter 2, it's amazing to me that when Paul wants a word that best describes the moral character of the place that we live, he says it's evil. It's evil. But in this new age... There's going to be no more devil, no more demons, no more seed of the devil, that is, unbelievers, no more wicked. All will be made new and there will be a new community with God's people. All temptation to sin and all vexation when you see sin will be no more. Will be no more. The world as we know it, will be completely done away with. And we will have a new community of God's people and God's people alone with the angels, the holy angels, and our God in heaven. Now, you might ask how that is to be. Because the the wicked, still in a being sense, an ontological sense, they still exist. They're in hell. So how is it that we will have a new community? And I I think that our scripture gives us two ways. First, we see that the wicked are excluded from the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation, the wicked are excluded from it. Notice with me the somber verses of verses 27 of chapter 21. It says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who, who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 3 of chapter 22 says relatively the same thing. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And lastly, notice the contrast of verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter into the city by the gates, the eternal state, outside, that is outside of that new heavens and new earth, are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolatry and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The wicked are excluded from the new creation and exist in another, another part, another section of God's created order. Um, what we call that, I don't know, but it seems clear that they are outside of the new creation. But secondly, we see that the bride is protected. Not only are the wicked excluded in a negative sense, but positively, the bride of Christ is protected. And that's what we should realize from the measurement language. Now, I don't want to get us off base too far. But notice in verses 15 through 21 that the angel speaks to John and he has a a rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And you might recall the text. He goes around with this measuring stick and he measures the city. And you might say, well, what kind of spiritual purpose do we have in the measurement of a city? Well, this is very... Consistently in the Old and New Testament language of protection. That is, what is measured by the angel is protected by God. Just turn with me to a couple of texts. I just want this to stick with you as you read measurement language. That it is really a wonderful promise that things are going to be... When things are measured, they are protected in the Bible. In the book of Zechariah, that is the second to last book of your Bible... Zechariah of the Old Testament, I'm sorry. Second to last book of the Old Testament, okay? 
Zechariah, in verse, chapter 1 and verse 16, and there's a lot of places we could go. We could go to Ezekiel's measurement of the temple and all these different things. I think this is a pretty text. Zechariah 1.16, notice, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So in the midst of all of this language that God's going to bring his people back and protect them, he says, I'm going to stretch my measuring line over Jerusalem. But we don't have to go much further than the book of Revelation to see this measurement language conveys an idea of protection. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. Verses 1 and 2 say this. Notice, then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. That's something I hadn't considered before this week. He's not only to measure the temple, he's to measure the people that worship in the temple. Notice what is said in verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So notice that. Don't measure the outside, because that is not protected, but measure the internal dimensions of the temple and those who are in it, because they will be protected people. The bride of Christ will be protected from evil, and the wicked will be totally excluded. Certainly two ways of saying the same thing, but both are mentioned in our text. The outside context of God's people will be made completely new. And that's what I want to drive home to us today. The first promise, the great promise that we have, is that there will be a new context of a new creation, a new communion with God, and a new community of God's people, unmixed and pure in heaven. But you will also be made new. You will be made new. You should be comforted, not only because of a promise of a new creation, but the promise of a brand new humanity in Jesus Christ. And the first promise in this regard is that Christ will give all of us a new body. A new body. And just as we began the last section, that everything is because of Jesus Christ, our new body is because of our union with Him. That is because we believe in Him. We have been promised in God's Word that we've been baptized into the body of Christ and take nourishment from Him who is in heaven. And we will have a new body because we will need a new body for the new world. It will be so glorious and so wonderful that our current physical frames could not handle it. We need something greater and more glorious. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15. Now, this is a hard text. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. But I want us to notice that Paul enters into a rather long discourse about what our new bodies are going to be like. That is, we are not without scriptural revelation to know what our bodies are going to be like. It's hard to know where to start here. I'm going to start in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is when we die, our bodies are perishable. What is is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being in the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So notice the union language there. You have a body that is perishable, dishonorable, weak, because you are united in Adam. 
You come from Adam's seed. But being united with Jesus Christ in the resurrection, we bear His image bodily. Okay? First Adam, we bear His image in corruption, dishonor, and death. But at the resurrection, our souls and bodies will bear the image of the second Adam. Now, of all of those qualities that Paul gives us about the new body, I want us to focus just a little bit on that strange phrase, he'll give us a spiritual body, right? So, some have taken that to mean that we're not really going to have physical bodies, but we're going to have some kind of angelic body that's not really physical. But that's, that's not what our text is trying to teach us here. It's trying to teach us that our new bodies are going to be perfectly righteous and holy. Rather than being controlled by the flesh, our bodies will be controlled by the Spirit. Matthew Poole helpfully says it's spiritual because they shall perfectly obey the made perfect. Brothers and sisters, in this present age, I know you can identify with this statement from Galatians 5 that your flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against the flesh to keep you doing the things that you want to do. Isn't that true? But in the new heavens and the new earth, your new body will be spiritual. The flesh, our physical nature, will no longer combat the Spirit and what it wants to do. It will be controlled by the Spirit of God. It will be a truly spiritual body. In that promised age that is coming, your flesh will be perfectly controlled by the Spirit of God. But Jesus Christ, when He comes, and when that new age comes to us, we're not just going to be changed physically. hope we know that. We will be changed interiorly. And most of all, our will will be changed. The things that we desire, the things that we want, will be changed. Now... Thomas Boston has a wonderful work, Man in His Fourfold Nature. And all that that is trying to show is that the will of man in the different times and ages that man has existed, his will has been different. When we think about the Garden of Eden and man's original creation, what was man's will like? Well, it could do either good or evil, right? It could choose either good or evil. And it chose evil. Now, we think of after the fall. What is man's nature like before he is regenerate, before he knows Jesus Christ? I hope it's not shocking to you to say that his will has changed. He cannot, he does not have the choice to either do good or evil, but can only do evil. Now, although he might do things that appear right externally, the Bible tells us if we do anything without faith in God, without giving glory to Him, those deeds are actually evil in God's sight. And man's nature is so changed by the fall that he cannot do right. We've given the expression before. But we are free to do according to what our nature is. Just as... You you know the thing I'm going to say. A turtle is free in his nature. He's free to do turtle things, isn't he? He's not free to fly. Because his nature doesn't allow it. As fallen sinners, we are not able to do good. It is not within our nature. But when we believe in Jesus Christ through his grace, our nature is changed so that we can choose either good or evil. Okay? We, we can do right. We can do things for the love of God and in faith. But we can also do evil. I go through all of that to say this. In this eternal state, there's a fourth state of man. That our wills will be changed to where we cannot do evil. We will only ever do good. Now, if that's strange for you to think of, I would just ask you to think of God who is called most free. He's free to do whatever he pleases, but can God lie? No, he can't lie. Can God do evil? Can he sin? Can he tempt you to sin? Well, the Bible clearly says he can't. Does that mean that God doesn't have the power or the freedom that the Bible says he does? Well, no, because God operates to his own nature. He's good. 
and therefore He only does good. And you will have the same kind of will, that same characteristic in your own soul. You will no longer be able to lie because your nature will not allow it. You will be good. No longer able to sin because you will be really, truly good. Perfectly good. And Christ will bring all of this to pass again eternally. Not like Adam and Eve in the garden where they had a possibility of falling. It will be better than Eden because there will be no possibility of Satan entering in, no possibility of your will being changed because it is immutable in heaven. Unchangeable. No possibility that the glory that we share with our God will ever end or ever even diminish These are wonderful promises, brethren and sisters. And that's what I I just want to put forward to us today. That John gives us these wonderful promises. The Holy Spirit shows them to him in this vision so that we would believe them. That we would turn our eyes upward and hope for that eternal state to come. The question is, with these things that can seem so far away from us and so ethereal, how should we live Because of these realities. How should this change how we live? The first way this should change us is that it should cause us more and more to trust the one who died to save us and to bring us to this place. We should trust Him. And I want us to to notice that in Revelation 21 and 22, this is the application that the Holy Spirit has in, verse tw- in chapter 21 and verse 6, after these wonderful promises are given, notice what is said. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Have you heard these promises today? And you desire for them to be yours. The call is, trust Jesus Christ who has done all for you. You don't earn these things. You don't have to save up like your weekly Verbo uh, vacation to go and change your context. Jesus Christ has done it for you and He says, come and drink. If you want it, come. Similarly, chapter 22 and verse 17. I, I love this verse. The Spirit and the Bride, that is the church and the Holy Spirit, say, come. Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Notice that repeated refrain. It is free to take it. You don't have to do anything or become anything before you believe. Simply believe that Jesus has died and risen for you. And this will be yours. And Christian, renew your trust in Him. Believe the Gospel because these things are coming to you. But a second application that we have is that we are to to mortify, to kill our sinful sorrows and anxieties that we have because of the, the terrifying place that we live in this Christian life. We must not lose heart in this world. We must not give up our confidence. Notice what Romans 8.18 that we already read says. For I consider, Paul thinking in his mind, he considers that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is great suffering in this present time. Things that are hard to even discuss and think about for a moment. That suffering is like a feather on the scales compared with the weight of glory that will be in eternity. We're to kill our sinful sorrows and anxiety but we are to make alive to vivify our thankfulness to God. He's promised these things to dirty, rotten scoundrels like you and me. And we're to be thankful for it. We are, as Hebrews 12 says, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be grateful. Third, last, be zealous for living for the One who died for you. As we consider the great promises that are coming, turn with me to 2 Peter 3.11. And with this, we will end our time today. 
2 Peter 3.11, this is the application the Scriptures give to us when we consider the new heavens and new earth. Notice what Peter says and how he connects righteous living to these promises. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, do you desire a place like we've described today? A place where righteousness dwells and not evil. If you desire that, the only logical application we make to ourselves is that I want to live like that. If I'm going to be righteous, and I love that idea and not hate it, then there must be fruit of that springing up even in this life. These thoughts, these great promises should cause us to live holy lives and to trust our God. So, in conclusion today, we are to be comforted by these texts. Comforted that God will create a new heavens and a new earth and that He's going to create me and you new once again. Completely new forever. Amen. And as we turn our eyes to the Lord's table, this visible Word that we have, that's what the sacraments are. They, you've heard the audible Word given to you from the Scriptures today. And God loves us so much that He has given us a visible Word that we can sense, not just with our ears, but with our eyes, our tongues, and our hands. And this is to remind us of the death of Jesus Christ. That He died for sinners. He took all of our sin upon Himself and was crushed for us. Crushed for us that we would wait for Him until He comes. Brothers, would you come forward?